Let's pray together. Lord, we read in your word that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting and training in righteousness. But Lord, it is not automatic that as we preach your word, that the preaching of that word will flourish unless the power of God is brought to us and unless there's an anointing of your spirit. And so we pray that you would cause us to rely on the word of the spirit in all humility and meekness and that you would glorify your name through this word for the good of your people in Jesus name. Amen. In 1952, C.S. Lewis penned the following words. Quote, I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Namely, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who has said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us, and he did not intend to. Well, so says C.S. Lewis, and in the reading of John 10, what you'll find is that the Pharisees clearly made up their mind about Jesus. They couldn't prove that Jesus was a liar. They certainly weren't ready to call Jesus Lord And so they resorted to the idea of Jesus being a madman. But if you just stop and think about it, Jesus did say some pretty crazy stuff. In verses 7 and 9 in this chapter, Jesus calls himself a door. That's weird language for a person to refer to themselves as. What what does he mean? And then right after that, he switches metaphors and he calls himself a shepherd. And the Pharisees are just having a blast with this as Jesus is is going back and forth into different metaphors about who he is. And, And you can just imagine the Pharisees saying, what are you, Jesus? Are you a door or are you a shepherd? Mixed metaphor, Jesus. You don't even know who you are. A door or a shepherd? And what's it, what does it mean to be a door anyway, Jesus? By the way, I think it's interesting that scholars today, especially in academia, literary critics love to read the Bible and talk this way. They love to look at the Bible and they love to say things like, oh, the Bible's full of contradictions and mixed metaphors. John 10 is a classic example of this. But when they talk like this about texts like John 10, what they're really proving is that they don't have a clue what Jesus is talking about. And and that's because there is an infinite difference, literally a life and death difference between reading the Bible from a purely rationalistic frame of mind and reading the Bible from the eyes of faith. 
there's an eternity of difference. I mean, there's just certain things that an Ivy League PhD can't get you. And this is one of them. So what if Jesus mixes his metaphors? Can he not do that? Does that matter? Can Jesus not be two things at the same time? Can the God who spoke this world into existence not be both the entry point of salvation and the shepherd at the same time? Is that too hard for us to fathom? Is it really so unthinkable that a shepherd who rescues sheep would call himself the door of salvation? The truth is, for unbelievers, it is unthinkable because they don't see Jesus with the eyes of faith. We do. They don't. There's a big difference there. So before we get too carried away in our ridicule of secular scholarship... Just think for a moment, what would it be like for you to read this text without the eyes of faith? See, we're Christians, we have eyes to see, but without grace or without God's work in our life, without divine illumination, we would be just as prone as the Pharisees to think that Jesus Christ was a madman. You would. You would think he's crazy. If you don't think so, look at verse 17 in this chapter. Think about how outlandish these words are from Jesus to the natural hearer, to the natural mind. Here's what he says in verse 17. Jesus talking about his life and he says, This is why the Father loves me, because I'm laying down my life so that I may take it up again. (laughs) What? You're you're saying your Father loves you because you're going to kill yourself? And then raise yourself from the dead? That sounds normal to you because you're a Christian. But if you're not a Christian or if you're living in a third world country and you've never heard of Jesus and somebody says that a man said that, you would think that man's crazy. And then to say that that's the reason why the father loves him because he's going to kill himself and then raise himself from the dead. I mean, it's crazy. Or as he goes on, verse 18, Jesus says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. All right, well, that's not a problem because everybody in this room has the authority to lay down your own life. You can do that. You can kill yourself. You can end your life if you want. So that's not hard to believe. That's not crazy. But it's what Jesus says next that's the problem. Jesus says, Jesus says, I have the right to lay it down and, and I have the right to take it up again. <laughs> and the Pharisees say, you're crazy, Jesus. That's insane. There is no way that you can take up your life. And it does sound insane. It sounds crazy because no man in this room can do that or can say that. And if you do say that, then people are going to say you're crazy. Because you can walk out of here today and throw yourself out in front of a car or a train and be dead. And I'll tell you what, you're not coming back from that. So no wonder these guys think he's crazy. So C.S. Lewis is right. We're going to have to do something here with Jesus. Because listen, either he is crazy or he's the son of God. There's really only two choices for us in this room. Nobody here is allowed to be neutral about Jesus. You don't get to say, for example, well, I'm I'm just torn 
you know, I'm not really sure. I'm undecided whether or not I think Jesus is a crazy man or the son of God. I'm torn on that issue. No, because you've already made up your mind before you came here. And your life bears evidence to that. Listen, if you've not bowed your knee to Jesus and confessed that he's the son of God, then for all intents and purposes, you think and you have concluded that he's crazy. You're saying by your unbelief that you can't trust him because otherwise you would believe in him. So don't be deceived because everyone in this room is either blaspheming God right now or worshiping God. And that is determined right now by your posture toward Jesus Christ. You say, well, wait a minute, Pastor John. I do think that Jesus is the son of God. But quite frankly, the issue for me is that I'm not interested in following him. But you see, if you talk like that, then I have to tell you that you really have no idea what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God. You really don't feel the weight of that statement because if you did, you would not be so cavalier about that. It's true that people don't want to say that Jesus isn't the Son of God, but functionally people live like that all the time. People live like Jesus really is lying about who he says he is. People live like Jesus really isn't the son of God. They don't fear Jesus. They don't respect Jesus. They don't revere him. They don't care about listening to what Jesus has to say. They don't see Jesus as needing to be the Lord of their life. So here's the decision that we're all faced with. We can go on pretending that Jesus isn't who he says he is, or for some of us this morning, we can fall on our face for the first time right here and right now and declare that Jesus is the son of God. Two choices, blaspheme or worship. The Bible doesn't give you a third option. The undecided category isn't an option because if you're undecided, then you're casting a a vote against Jesus. And the Pharisees made their choice crystal clear. Verse 20, many of them said, many of them were saying, he has a demon. He's crazy. Now, why do I say all this? What's the point of starting this way? Well, I say it because... I just want us to stop for a moment and think about what we're doing in this room this morning. This church exists for Jesus Christ. We are a people who worship Jesus. Just let that land on you for a moment. We are a people who worship a man who said the kind of things we just read. We're a people who worship this Jesus Christ, and we are happy about that. We worship a man who claims in this text to be the only way to God. And you know what? We love that truth. We are for that. We love the glory of God. We believe that his worship and praise should be established in every human heart on the face of this earth. And therefore, that is why Heritage Baptist Church loves missions. We're crazy about it. We love missions because the glory of God is not being honored in the world. 
It's not honored in this city of Owensboro, and it's not honored in the world at large. So missions matters. It deeply matters. And it's why Piper, who first said, why we agree with Piper, who first said, missions exist because worship doesn't. The holiness of God is not revered. The greatness of God is not admired. The power of God is not praised. The truth of God is not sought. The wisdom of God is not esteemed. The beauty of God is not treasured. The goodness of God is not enjoyed. The faithfulness of God is not trusted. The commandments of God are not obeyed. The justice of God is not feared. The grace of God is not cherished. The presence of God is not prized. The person of God is not loved. And the result of all that is that God is not worshipped. He is despised. He is disbelieved. He is disobeyed. He is disregarded. He is hated in this world. And we are not okay with that as a church. We exist to change that. This church exists to make worshipers of Jesus Christ. We exist for the glory and the fame of God. And we will go to our grave announcing his greatness. We desperately want to see God honored, and it starts here in this city. So John 10, verses 1 through 11, is actually is meant to lead you to worship this Jesus. And every text is meant to lead us to worship. Last week, Pastor Keith took us through the text, Jesus' statement, I am the good shepherd. And today, what we're going to see is why this good shepherd is worthy of worship, why he's the only shepherd worthy of worship. So let me tell you how this text is meant to lead us to worship this morning. It's divided into three, three uh, sections, verses 1 through 6, verses 7 through 10, verses 11 through 18. And it's really important to see that structure. Verses 1 through 6 tell us what the good shepherd is doing. He's gathering sheep. Verses 7 through 10 tell us why the shepherd is doing that. He's doing it to give us life. And verses 11 through 18, and we'll focus on verse 11, tells us how he does that. He lays down his life for the sheep. All right, that's the text. And let's work on that for a few moments this morning. First, what is the good shepherd doing? Verses 1 through 6, Jesus is testing the Pharisees. You need to know that this is, a, this is brought in from chapter 9. There's a connection here. And Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he's putting them to the test. And Jesus calls this little unit, verses 1 through 6, a figure of speech. You see that in verse 6. It's a kind of parable. It's an illustration. It's parabolic. Uh, And this is a... Because in there, in this little story, there's shepherd and there's sheep. There's There's a door and a gatekeeper. There are thieves. There are robbers. And here's the interesting thing about this is that Jesus nowhere identifies himself in verses 1 through 6. Jesus doesn't say, for example, I'm this or I'm that. Jesus just generally paints a picture uh, of this scene. And what he's doing is he's comparing true shepherds with false shepherds. And by doing that, he's actually confronting the Pharisees. See, what happened was Jesus healed a blind man in chapter 9. And the Pharisees get all bent out of shape about this and say, How dare you, Jesus, heal this blind man? And you know why they're upset about it? They're upset about it because Jesus healed him on the Sabbath. They don't don't care about this guy who got healed. 
And then they begin to question Jesus and say, they question this man, you know, you know we, we, first of all, they say, we don't really believe that he's healed. And then they bring him to him. The guy says, look, I'm healed. It's obvious. And then, and then so they question him and they say, well, then who did this to you? And he keeps saying, this man, Jesus did it. And so they keep questioning him. And so Jesus in chapter 10 is confronting these guys. He's confronting them. And at one point, the, the blind man gets upset in chapter 9. He's like, look, I keep telling you for the third time that Jesus healed me. He's like, I'm amazed, he says. He says, I'm amazed that you don't understand this, where this man came from. They said, where did the, the man come, came, come from? And the guy says, I'm amazed that you don't know. In other words, you should know that this man has come Not just from a town nearby, but this man has come from God. Is that not obvious to you? I have new eyes. I can see. Like maybe he came from heaven or something. Maybe he's God. (laughs) Here's a blind man speaking to Pharisees. And the Pharisees say, how dare you teach us? How dare you try to teach us? And so Jesus goes after these guys in chapter 10. And that's what he's doing. So in verse 1, when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he's reaching back to what he just said in chapter 9. There's no time gap, no change in circumstance, no change in crowd. In other words, Jesus continues to speak to the Pharisees. And what he's doing in essence is telling them, you guys are false shepherds. He likens them to thieves and robbers. They, they don't come through the door of the sheep. They, what do they do? They climb up another way. They, they finagle their way into the sheep pen. They're crooks. In other words, there's a world of difference here between how true shepherds get their sheep and how false shepherds get their sheep. That's the main idea. And in the midst of this, I love it because it's like Jesus is confronting these guys, but he's going to say some really precious things about his own sheep. He drills down. He talks about the closeness of the relationship between true shepherds and their sheep. Do you know this? The dearest, most intimate relationship on the face of the earth between animals and their masters is that between a sheep and a she- between sheep and a shepherd. They, they just have an uncanny relationship. I mean, even a, the guy says a dog's my best friend. Okay, that may be true, but your relationship with your dog isn't as close as a norm as an eastern shepherd with his sheep. These guys have a deep relationship with their sheep. And I love the closest intimacy of this description. You see in these verses, Jesus is, he's not really telling us so much who he is and what he offers. He's telling us how he feels about us. That, that's great. Sometimes we, we are so objective in the way we talk about Christ and salvation. Sometimes it's good to just talk about how he feels about us and how that should make us feel. And so... That's what Jesus is doing here. Just look at the language of verses 3 and 4. He calls, it says, he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. I heard a story about a shepherd who was driving down uh, the road in Palestine, you know, even this year. And as he was looking out, this missionary guy that was with him said that he looked over and he said, there's four of my sheep. They weren't earmarked. They weren't tagged. And the amazing thing is that he knew that. He said, those are four of my sheep. Jesus is, is saying, I know them by name. I lead them out. He knows them individually. Isn't that encouraging to you? That Jesus knows you, not just as a sheep, but individually. Charles Spurgeon says this. He said, love delights in personal pronouns. He died for the flock and for each one of his sheep in particular. 
So that we may each one say today, he loved me and gave himself for me. So that each one of us may know for himself that with special intent, the Lord Jesus bore the agony and bloody sweat, the cross and the passion for me. Amen. And so because of that, it says in verse 4 that the sheep follow him. Because they recognize his voice. That, what that means is the sheep know that sound. They, they have come to trust that voice. They like hearing it. it. It's not a strange voice to them. They love it, in fact. <clears throat> and when people meet Jesus for the first time, they hear a voice. And when they hear that voice, they say, yes, that's the voice I've been waiting for my whole life. Yes, it thrills them. They hear it. They can taste it. They can see it. They can sense it. They can feel his presence. They can smell him. You know why? Because shepherds smell like sheep. But false shepherds smell like wolves. They stink. They're nasty. And their voice is weird. Just flip on the TV sometime. Listen to some of those shepherds. It doesn't sound like Jesus at all. It doesn't smell right. Something is off. Something is way off. Because many of them are wolves in sheep's clothing. See, false shepherds are entirely selfish. They destroy the sheep. They kill for food. They get fat on the blood of the sheep. They come for harm. They have no interest in their welfare. And these Pharisees here are lousy shepherds. They're miserable shepherds. Jesus says of them, they load men with heavy burdens and they don't lift a single finger to help them. It's pitiful. But Christ, on the other hand, comes for the benefit of the sheep. He comes to rescue the sheep and gather the flock to himself for his praise and for their good. So in verse 4, it says, The sheep follow the shepherd because they recognize his voice. Do you know his voice? Do you recognize that voice? When you read the Bible, do you hear the voice of God speaking to you? Do you sense his sweet and powerful presence while you listen to what he's saying to you? You know what? Sometimes it's so tangible. Sometimes God's presence is so tangible, so felt. You can physically even feel close. You feel his presence. You feel his nearness to you as he ministers his word and his promises to you. Sometimes it's manifested in tears. Sometimes it's manifested in, 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 in almost a, a trembling in his presence. There's physical manifestations. Jonathan Edwards talks about this. He talks about this in lots of his essays. Distinguishing marks of the work of the Spirit of God. It's no proof that that's the Spirit, but sometimes it clearly is the Spirit. And so I hope that you hear God's voice. And when you hear God's voice through the Word while you're reading it or while you're listening to it preached, I hope that what you hear is that irresistible voice tugging you and drawing you to worship so that over and over again, as you're reading this Bible, you keep saying to yourself, Yes, yes. Yes, yes, Lord, yes. I love this. You hear his voice. You love his voice. Is that your experience? Or are you more accustomed to the voice of strangers? The the, the strange voice out there, the world's voice, 
Because Jesus says in verse 5 really clearly that his sheep will never follow the voice of a stranger. Instead, they will run from him because they do not recognize the voice. I love the idea they're running from those voices. Get me away from that. I don't want to hear that. It's not like, let me hear this and, and just kind of test it. It's like, get, get that out of here. I don't, I don't even want to be exposed to it. Get it out of here. See, one of the true marks of God's people is that we are not deceived. God has put a protection on us so that we are not deceived by false prophets and teachers. This is a marvelous statement about God's grace. It's a grace-given discernment to resist wrong voices so that we are not led astray. Jesus says his true sheep will listen, will not, excuse me, listen to the voice of thieves and robbers. And isn't this what Jesus teaches in Matthew 24? Jesus said, false messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform many great signs and wonders to lead astray, if it were possible, even the elect. The implication of that is what? That it's not possible because if it were possible, the people would do it. But it's not possible. And that's a gift of grace to us. Thank you, Lord. And one of the evidences of being God's sheep is that there is a love for the truth. We have a love for for the truth and a genuine desire to hear the shepherd's voice and follow him. And that's what's so concerning about our church today. The modern church, the evangelical church in America and in the world. People just want a a nice, good scratch on their ears. Their itching ears. It's what J.I. Packer calls hot tub religion. It feels so good. Ooh, I like that. Give me some more of that. Friend, if you're following what your flesh wants... I can assure you, you are not hearing the voice of the shepherd. The truth of God is incompatible with our natural desires. But we live in a culture that scoffs at the idea of needing guidance from God. We live in a culture that rebels against any notion of authority. People are walking around with their eyes closed deliberately. But you only need to see what a mess people are making of their lives. Families are breaking up. Marriages are being ruined. Gangs are roaming the street. It's chaos out there. And the fact is, we need a good shepherd. Friend, what is your life for? Where are you going? What are you doing on this earth? We are vulnerable people. We need a guide. We need a shepherd to lead, feed, guide, and protect us. And without it, we will die. So Jesus is gathering a people to himself. How kind is this? The Pharisees came to Jesus and they ridiculed him for, quote, receiving sinners. But you know what? They were wrong. Jesus doesn't receive sinners. Jesus pursues sinners. He pursues sinners like a shepherd pursues lost sheep. Like a woman pursues a lost coin. Like a father runs after a lost son with binoculars in his hand and a flashlight by his side. He is going to find his lost son. Friends, Jesus runs in pursuit of sinners. I love this picture of Jesus. The Scottish poet Horatius Bonar said, he said it this way, it's beautiful. In his work of saving, Christ is aggressive. He goes out in order to find them. He is ever on the outlook. He does not merely sit above on his throne, 
receiving applications of those who come. He comes down among us. He goes back and forth throughout the earth. He walks up and down it. His daily, hourly work is going in quest of sinners. Praise God. And that's what the shepherd is doing, and we are to emulate the shepherd. So that's what he's doing now, verses 7 through 10. Why? Why is he doing this? Well, here we come to the actual I am statement of Jesus. And what a magnificent truth this is. Verse 7, Jesus said again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. You see, what Jesus is doing all through this text is putting his character on display. And now, in 7 through 10, he turns the metaphor slightly like you would turn a diamond to see a different facet of his character. This time, he likens himself to a door. Now, what you have to understand in the ancient Near East is that shepherds would often be out in the plain with their sheep. And if it became late at night, they would not have time or the sunlight to make it down to the city and put their sheep into a communal sheepfold. So what they would have to do is they'd have to sort of erect a a, a sheepfold out in the middle of the pasture somewhere, and they would grab rocks and stones and sticks and brush or whatever they could find, and they would build this out in the middle of nowhere. But since there was no gate in this, they would leave a little opening in the path so that the sheep could come in and go out. They could come in and they could go out. And they would keep this. But because there's no gate, the shepherd would lay in that gap to keep the sheep from going out or to keep wolves or other animals from coming in. So it was a, sort of a stop gap. It was a protection to leave, to keep the sheep in and to keep other things out. And so by using this image, Jesus is making it quite clear that he is the door. He is the gate. Which means that He's not only, he not only has access to the sheep and protects them, but he's the only way into the fold. You don't get into the fold without coming through the door. No one gets in without it. Christ is making an exclusive claim here. Jesus is saying there's only one source of life, one fountain of spiritual nourishment, one basis for eternal security, Jesus alone. Christ is saying, I am the door, which is very similar to John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life, which is where we're going next week. So we're not going to labor on that point right now. Let's save that. What I want to do now is explore a little deeper what it means for Jesus to be the door. Because there's so much for us here if we just dig, if we just dig a little deeper under the surface. See, by using this phrase, what Jesus is saying is, if you believe me, If you follow me, if you trust me as the pathway to God, I'm going to do two things for you. I promise you two things. Let's see the results. Here it is. If you come through my door, I promise two things. One, salvation, and two, life. Both of them are found in verse 9. Jesus says, if you come to me, you will be saved and you will find pasture. In other words... You will find safety and satisfaction. I will not only save you from destruction and ruin, but I'm going to give you life and pleasure in my pasture. See, what Jesus is saying is, I'm not just interested in your security and safety. I'm interested in your happiness and joy. I'm going to give you life. 
Do, do you see why I told you earlier that in this text, there is so much concerning how Jesus feels about us? He is so kind. His shepherdly care is so amazing. This is the God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And the context for that enjoyment is safety. It's security. And that's no small thing in this world to be safe and secure. Jesus is saying, if you come to me as the door, you will be saved. In other words, there are lots of wolves in this world. False teachers, there are, there are people out to get you, to harm you, to kill you, to destroy your life. There are drugs, there's substance abuse. There is a whole world coming against you. You need all kinds of protection, I can assure you. And Jesus is saying, I am the door. I am the door, and in verse 10, a thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And Jesus is saying, if you come through my door, I'm going to protect you. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to let you be hurt by these wolves, or whatever it is that will destroy your life. I am going to protect you. Jesus, you're not going to be hurt by these wolves. You are mine. I'm watching over your life. And the moment some little wolf comes up to attack you, I'm going to be standing there as the lion from the tribe of Judah. And you will not be harmed by these wolves. I will be standing over you in protection. People have this little idea about shepherds, this, this effeminate idea that they're so gentle and they're carrying this nice little lamb in their hands. Friends, I'm going to tell you, a shepherd is a very manly thing. A shepherd, men, a shepherd is a really manly occupation. And when Jesus is talking about his protection of his sheep, he means to bring all of that strong, masculine strength to bear on this situation. He says, I am here to protect you. You will not be harmed. You will not be hurt. Christian, take hope. Take hope in, in this this morning. This is deeply comforting. I mean, who doesn't need this kind of protection and safety? The confidence and courage this alone should produce in our lives. And the result is, is that you are free to go crazy for Jesus. To risk your life, to, to lay your life on the line for Jesus Christ because he's your protection. Who's going to hurt you if you go to a third world country? If you do missions in a, in a, in a world where, where, where the government is against you and, and people are against you and it's violent. Then who's going to hurt you when Jesus is standing beside you? Unless God calls you home, unless God says this is your moment, this is when you will die. Unless God says that, you're fine. You're protected. You're safe. Why are we afraid? People of God, why are we afraid? Even in America, some of you live in fear. How can you live in fear? Jesus is your shepherd. Oh, hear the word of God. So what cause do you have for fear this morning, friends? Psalm 4.8, in peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Psalm 32, 7. You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Jesus says in Matthew 28, I am with you always. Always. Even until the end of the age. That's what I want to hear after the death of a loved one. That's what I want to hear when the doctor says cancer. 
That's what I want to hear in the, in the middle of the night, in the, in the deepest, darkest loneliness and despair that I've ever faced. That's what I want to hear when I'm on my deathbed about to breathe my last. I want to know that Jesus is with me through thick and through thin, through pain and through sorrow, through toil and through hardship, through confusion and unbelief. And friends, he is... And he promises to be with us always. What a shepherd Jesus is. But look, it gets better. It, this, is, this, this text became so alive to me this week. I mean, you got this one metaphor about a door and it's so profound. It gets better because not only does he provide salvation and safety, but he provides a pasture. How lavish is our God? Look at verse 9. There are two things listed in that verse. Do you see the word and in verse 9? Jesus says, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will find pasture. In other words, God is interested in way more than just keeping you safe as a Christian. He wants you to have life and have it to the fullest. (laughs) I'm so glad. I'm so glad because I love safety, but I don't want to just be safe in this life. Do you? Don't you want to have more than just safety? Don't you want to be satisfied and filled? Don't you want to be happy in this life? I mean, listen, safety is great, but what God is saying is, I want you to graze. I want you to roam around in my pastures. I want you to find cool waters. I want you to find good food to eat. I want you to find comfortable places to lay down. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I shall not lack a thing. I will not lack anything. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, not brown pastures, green pastures. He leads me beside still calm waters. He restores my soul. Anybody need to be restored this morning? The good shepherd has pastures. Walk into the pastures. There's cool waters for you. There's good food for you to eat. There are places for you to lay down your weary head. And I want to tell you this, Jesus wants you to do that. He wants that for you. He feels that for you. He loves that for you. What more could we ask for? Protection and pleasure, safety and satisfaction, salvation and blessing, life to the fullest. Oh, I'm sure you've had a stressful week. I'm sure you've had problems. I'm sure you're facing trials and temptations. But, but just cancel all that for a second. Forget about all that for a moment and think about this. There are green pastures awaiting you right out of that door. And you know what? Some of the greenest pastures in your life are right here in this room. Because there's a lot of feeding that goes on in this place. Are you kidding me? What a shepherd. What a God, how lavish is he with us? And, and yes, even in sorrow, even in pain, we are drenched in his love. He, he means to just drench us in his love. Oh, friends, Jesus has led you into a pasture of plenty and abundance. And this abundance, listen, finds its apex in the very enjoyment of God himself. That's life. Being in his presence and filled daily with a deeper understanding and ever increasing understanding of who Jesus is as he discloses himself to you in his word or on your knees in prayer or in the boiler room on Sunday mornings or through fellowship with the church or over the preaching of the word. This room is where we go every Sunday to get our souls fat. 
I hope you are a well-nourished sheep. I hope you are a sheep. I hope you're just getting obese, just getting fat. (laughs) Not for yourself, but to give of that plenty to others. There's always a missions end to this. But Jesus means for you to be a fat soul, an obese, fat soul. Feed frequently in this pasture. Friends, he came to give us life to the extreme. He came to give us life so great that it cannot be added to, improved upon, taken away, or revoked. Paul put it like this. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. God has exhaustively poured out his fatherly, paternal inheritance on us. John put it like this. Of his fullness, we have all received and grace upon grace. Paul said in him, we are made complete. And so positionally, what that means is that in Jesus, we have reached the top. We have reached the pinnacle. We are sons and daughters of God positionally. And that means that progressively, we are being renewed daily into the image of God. We are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. That's our progression. And guess what our destination is? Our destination is that he will raise our bodies from their corrupt state, their sinful corrupt state, and he will make them new. And then our life Our souls, our bodies will be delivered from the very presence, penalty, and power of sin forever. So rightly does Christ say, I have come to give them life to the fullest. Does anybody doubt him? I mean, how can we know this is true? How did he do it? You may be saying, Jesus, for you to say that you are the only approach to God, for you to claim that you give life and life to the fullest, for you to say that men are better off for knowing you and that you are the fulfillment and the culmination and the point of Psalm 23. How can I be sure that those words are true, Jesus? How can I be sure that you want that for me, that this is for me? How can I know that you did this for me? Here's how. Listen, listen, here's how. Here's what Jesus says to you. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You want to know how this is possible? Here's how it's possible. I died for you. I laid down my life for you and my life wasn't wasted. My life counted for something. It counted for you. And the reason you have life and salvation is because I experienced death and condemnation. And I didn't just lay down my life, but I took it up again. I raised myself from the dead so that you can have life forever. That's how. My life counted It lasted. It's for you. I gave my life to you. Oh, friend, do not doubt. Do not doubt that God is for you. And if you have not come to Jesus, just do it now. His arms are wide open. Come into the sheepfold. He's the door. He would love to bring you in. And then he will nurture you and protect you and give you life. To the fullest. I close with these words from Ann Vokstamp. 
She says this, If God didn't withhold from us his very own son, would God withhold anything from us? If trust must be earned, hasn't God unequivocally earned our trust with a bark on his raw wounds, the thorns pressed into the brow, your name on the cracked lips? How will he not also graciously give us all things he deems best and right? He's already given us the incomprehensible. Let's pray. Lord, take these words in John 10, drive them deep into us and transform us forever through it. May we know your fullness. Oh Lord, take the struggling Christians in this church and Lord, lead them out into green pastures this week. Let them feel the cool, refreshing waters of your love. And may those who don't know you taste and see for the first time that the Lord is good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.